the letter to the Ephesians. Shall we? I'm going to read chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace." wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Father, we bow in childlike worship, acknowledging, Lord, the highness of thy greatness and mercy. Uh, forbearing with us so much in our frailty and ignorance and neglect. And yet, Father, our hearts inspire to take hold of Christ more deeply this morning. What a privilege to have the Holy Scriptures. Bless it to our hearts. Uh, May we take it in 
and live thereby. Help us, Lord, as we look into thy word, we pray in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, perhaps uh, the place to start is is to look at the the address of the letter, right? It's to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus. And uh, perhaps if you're a a detail-oriented person, if you think about things, you may find um, a, a very peculiar feature about the Ephesian letter. And that is that it doesn't seem to be written to the church at Ephesus. Um, I, I say if you're a very, very detail-oriented person, you can be a detail-oriented person and not get that, but if you're a very detail-oriented person, that would bother you. Um, <clears throat> or, or not bother you, but you would maybe think about it. Remember that Paul spent much time in Ephesus, right? And in fact, as he made his final journey to Jerusalem, he gathered the, the Ephesian elders together and said, um, you'll see my face no more. Remember? Uh, his ministry there was so effective that uh, all that were in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. He found 12 disciples in the upper coast that had, were limited to the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet, <clears throat> the letter to the Ephesians is the only letter that Paul writes to a church with whom he is familiar where there's no indication in the epistle that he knows the people at all. So, to the Corinthians, Paul talks very much or writes very much about his relationship with them. Lots of controversy there. Um, the Galatians, he, um, it's, it's again, their, his familiarity with them is on primary, uh, prominent display. In writing to the Thessalonian churches, he makes reference, when I was among you, and so on. To the Romans, Paul tells us plainly he had never been to Rome and that he's ready to preach to them. To the Colossians, he said, um, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He'd never been to the Colossian church and there was no reference in the letter. To the Philippians, you remember how that began, preaching to Lydia and them there, he makes reference about the constant communication they had back and forth. But here we have a perplexing situation whereby Paul writes by name to the church at Ephesus, a church that he has long familiarity with, and yet he writes as if he's never been there and doesn't know them. All right. Hmm, I never thought about that. That's what some of you are thinking. Okay, well, sorry to bring it up. But um, that's the thing. Wherefore, I, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, that's what he says to the Colossians. And it's like, oh, I heard about you as Christians, and now I'm writing to you. And <clears throat> uh, there would be a, uh, a couple of explanations for that. Um, that we might consider. Some believe, anyway, I won't bother you with what some believe. Uh, it says right in the text, he's writing to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And 
what we want to see and understand in the apostle's mind is he's here in prison in Rome. He has written a personal letter to the Philippian church. Very personal, uh, which there's no reproach. But during his time where his preaching has been hindered, and he's writing letters, he's now um, he's writing a revelatory doctrinal exposition, deeper. And he writes to the Colossian church, and he tells them, you, brethren, swap with the Laodicean church and cause their letter to be read amongst you. So he's, he's writing letters to these churches, and he's asking them to share the letters. And the, the apparent then is that he writes a letter to the Ephesians that he wants shared with all the churches, right? And so he writes a circular letter. He addresses it to the Ephesians. Um, and the Ephesian church did not have anything that needed setting in order. That is the thing. How can you say that? Well, years later... When the Lord Jesus himself is sending them a letter through John. I know thy works and thy labor. And he goes through and they were blameless in every outward point of Christianity. Except something that only Christ could know. Their hearts had become businesslike toward the Lord. It was duty without passion. Is that right? Diligence without um, that deep love, that first love, uh, so easy to do. Men, we can do it in marriage, and we need to stir up the flame continuously. I know some of you children, <laughs> young married, you think, no, it'll never happen. And it, you're right, it doesn't ever happen. But it can. It's a natural tendency of life. You get old, you get tired, you get less energetic. You can start taking your uh, beloved wife for granted. Uh, and it's different from the fire, you know, just all the warm fuzzies that um, you have inside all the time. You can keep that going um, your whole life, and I exhort you to do that. But that was the only thing that the Ephesian church could be reproached in. And Paul was not into um, rebuking people for invisible things, right? He addressed church issues that were visible. And so the Ephesian church did not have any church issues that were visible. Remarkable. And in fact, they might have not left their first love by the time he wrote this letter. So it was a perfect church to write a general revelatory letter to. All right? See that? Um, and that would be, explain the uniqueness. It's a time in his ministry. His preaching has been curtailed. He's there locked up in prison. He writes to the Philippians who, with whom he was intimately acquainted. and uh, Involved rather. And then he's writing these doctrinal revelatory letters. Uh, the Roman systematic theology. His, his theology or his letter to the Romans. Where he lays out the whole program of God. Hoping to come and be with them. Uh, personally, it was really the ABCs, right? I mean, he covers from creation and then corruption to Christ to uh, the redemption of Israel, but he doesn't get into um, the, the fine details. It's like he paints a picture of the temple at a distance. In Ephesians, he gets more close to it and uh, 
unfolds some revelation. So there's a difference in his ministry at this point in his time. And that, to me, would explain why uh, the Ephesian letter has the features it does. And not, as one or two people have suggested, that it was originally written to the Laodiceans and the Ephesians got a copy of it and just changed it. I mean, that, I think, is a bit of a, a stretch, you know, that that is what happened. And in the providence of God, we have this here and we're just fooled, you know. Don't think so at all. He may have written a couple and just changed the, the titles. A form letter, you know. He didn't have a photocopier, word processor. So that would be... That would be certainly very possible. But that seems to be the primary thing, is that he's at this point in his ministry, and he's writing these things. And the Ephesian letter has basically two parts. Chapters 1 to 3, and chapters 4 to 6. Chapters 1 to 3 tell you the what, where, when, why, and who of what God is doing And chapters 4 to 6 tell us the how we are participating in that. It it quite neatly divides. For those of you that like symmetry, you've got three chapters on the one side and three chapters on the other. It's really tidy organization. Um, Scriptures don't often do that. Sometimes you get a complete shift right in the middle of a chapter. But there it is. The the first three chapters are revelation. And the the second three chapters are... uh, how, how to then participate. All right, Just to understand what's going on. It's very common for Paul to start with doctrine and then move on to, or start with theory and then move on to practice. That's a very effective way to teach, generally speaking, anyway. <clears throat> Hope that gives us some bearing. We can look into the book of Acts to see who the Ephesians were. But it's not really... Um, that significant to the epistle because there are no real particulars here that are unique to the Ephesian church. Uh, this is a, a um, discourse on the genius of God, what God is doing. Um, and it goes beyond the earth, really. It's the end product, the goal, the goal of God. Let's look at some of those things, shall we, brethren? Let's walk through the epistle here. and We read chapter 1. We'll see how far we get in it, but hopefully we can cover through the first um, three, four chapters, looking at some features uh, by way of introduction. Paul is starting out, and this, this epistle, it's easy to get lost because of the uh, repetitious nature of the language and the um, what is the right word to say of it the, it, it is very um, flowery that's almost a derogatory word it, it, it's not exaggerated but it's you know the this of the that of the other of the thing to, to get to a point and it's easy to just get lost in the words but we need to slow down and look at the words because they are important and the, the repetitious nature of it is not redundancy, needless. It's expressive. Paul is in awe of what he's looking at. And we should be as well. This has very, very, very practical implications for us. 
Um, here's an illustration of that. Ideology. How many of us would have a sense of what ideology is? Yeah, a few of us. You know, like uh, um, yes, feminism, and it can be an ideology, right? Uh, that uh, more than just uh, relief for the oppression of women, it can, it can really have an, an agenda that is based on a conviction of uh, female versus male. Right? Uh, you, you see it in politics a lot if you follow it. Ideology. There's this idea that um, this is the right way and it, it controls how one looks at, at everything. These uh, uh, <clears throat> what you have then is people gripped with an idea and a way of thinking and looking at the world and that gives instruction and motivation to everything they do. See that? Whatever the ideology is. Well, not saying this is ideology, but this is vision. And to have this clear should really affect our goals in life and what we do. Right? And you say, well, of course we know. And we're motivated to be Christians. Yes, but um, looking afresh at some things or looking at the same things in different ways can uh, uh, revive and refresh our motivation to serve the Lord Jesus. Let's look at what Paul is writing here. Later in his ministry, right? Galatians is written to babes, pre-babes. They've gone back in the womb. He says, I travail in birth again. Birth. Again. You sisters. Oh, bless you. You go through childbirth, labor to bring this child into the world. Imagine having to do it twice for the same child. <laughs> back in and start over. Oh, my word. Um... And the Corinthians were babes. The Romans, you know, he said, I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm coming to preach the gospel. Very elementary. But here, after some decades of ministry, Paul is sharing with a, an Ephesian church, a church that is very developed, has multiple elders, and um, has such a testimony that everything was in order. And to that church, he writes these things. Not... Uh, not the elementary things. Wants everyone to see what's going on. So he starts with a blessed, right? Blessed be God. Eulogized, a eulogy, you know, where you sing the praises of someone. Blessed be God. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Want to come back to that. So he's, he's looking at what God has done and he's just saying, praise the Lord. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. Heavenly places in Christ. Blessed us. Now, we have to pay attention to the us in there. Because sometimes it's us, all of us. Every Christian, everywhere. And sometimes he means us Jews. And that becomes pretty apparent later in the epistle. Not very far in the future, actually. Blessed us, though. Just think of that. We'll think on it a little more. Every spiritual blessing is pronounced by God concerning each of his children. 
We will look at the, the manner of the Old Testament blessings and realize what it means. Um, if we talk about a prominent importance of blessing, what, what Old Testament character story comes to mind? Hint, there's no wrong answer because I asked what comes to your mind. <laughs> Proverbs. Proverbs. Is that who you said Proverbs? Blessing. Abraham. Job. Jacob. All of those are right answers. <laughs> That's what comes to your mind, and they're all good answers. Um, Joseph, yeah. And arguably, you know, if you look at Abraham, if you look at uh, Joseph, if you look at uh, Jacob, those are very similar in that they're covenantal. In Proverbs and Job, you see um, more benevolent, right? In Proverbs and in Job, you see the goodness of God to the righteous, the blessing. In the um, narrative concerning uh, Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, it's covenantal blessing. Now, Paul writes every spiritual blessing. But my mind, it's interesting, my mind goes to the covenantal blessings. And if you think of, of Abraham, blessed, uh, blessed is he that blesseth thee. Cursed is everyone that curses thee. Right? Think of um, Jacob being blessed by his father Isaac. Right? And given you the dew of heaven. And, you know. All, basically, the providential hand of God is going to prosper everything that you do. In, um, under the law of Moses, you see the people, they had uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And half the priests on one side and half on the other side pronouncing blessings and then there's one cursings. But, you know, if you keep the law, blessed shalt thou be in the field and blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shall be the fruit of thy womb, of thy body and blessed shall be thy cattle. Everything you set your hand to, blessed of God. Because God is for you. And delights in you. And is going to prosper you. Now in the New Testament it's almost the opposite. Uh, All the day long appointed as sheep to the slaughter. In the world ye shall have tribulation. And that notion, that spiritual truth uh, was gradually introduced into the people of God. And you see it really in full display in the Psalms. The chastening of God for good. But in the New Testament it comes into its own. And the material, in the material world, Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> right? Everybody is against. You know, all sorts of trouble. Now that's hard to think in this country of ease and prosperity for so long. But that's the general plan for the Christian. Um, in the world ye shall have tribulation. And that's why Paul said, blessed with All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Spiritual blessings. Uh, What would that be? Some basics. Uh, The forgiveness of sins. It's a spiritual blessing. Deliverance from its enslaving power. That's a spiritual blessing. Victory over every evil spirit. That's a spiritual blessing. Access. To the divine nature and life. Free access. That's a spiritual blessing. It's a birthright. Think of Jacob and the blessing, right? The birthright, the access, the privileges. 
Every, all the spiritual blessings, God has pronounced them for the believer. And Paul saw this. Don't know when this was open to his understanding, but he saw it clearly, lived in it. When he wrote to the Romans, he said, I am sure that when I come to you, I am coming in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And he wrote, and, uh, and through the ages writes to all believers, wanting us to come in to realize all that's provided for us. So many spend their whole lives on only the forgiveness of sin. It's like going into the most magnificent, splendid temple in the universe and staying in the lobby. Your whole life. This is a grand, this is just the entrance. You want to get into the main hall and and then look in all the rooms. You spend your whole life just in, you know, and occasionally stepping back out the door and then kind of, you know. Then in, kind of looking at the coats. I mean, there wouldn't be coat checks and such a thing. The vestibule. What a shame. Forgiveness of sins, just the entrance in. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Look, this is, this is so key. Let me uh, find it. And Paul, uh, Paul writes of this to the, uh, to the Corinthians. Find it in, in Isaiah. Chapter 60. Oh dear. I hath not seen, neither hath the ear. What's that? Yes, that's what I thought. That's where I turned. I turned to 64. Oh, there it is. And I read that recently um, at prayer meeting. There it is. That's why I went to 64. uh, Isaiah 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Right? That was... um, what the prophet said. It's laid up. It's a treasure. It's unknown. Uh, no one has known, right? For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. See what he's saying there? That nobody knows. The people of God have never imagined what God has prepared for them. And Paul says, in writing to the uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And that's not true for most Christians. Most Christians have no more clue than, than what Isaiah wrote. They just know it's going to be great. And and they're content to go that way. Paul does not write with pen and paper. They're the things for each individual to search out from God and to get revelation in the Spirit. And you're blessed of God to do it, which means you can find out some of the things, some of the specific 
treasures and glories and ecstasies of heaven. You can find out some of them in this life by the Spirit. See, that's one of the, that's one of the blessings that's there. But you have to go past the entrance and explore this grand building. Blessed be God, the, and fa- the fa- blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we touched on that. Um, but let's look at where he's going. He's just saying. He's just exclaiming. This is this is a rabbinical hallelujah. <laughs> it, he has to um, expound according, and he explains according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. And without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. And there are basically two ways to take that passage. The Calvinist thinks that it is specific to each individual. And that each individual believer was created um, with an un breakable predestination to be saved no matter what their former life was before they were ever before anybody was ever created and your uh, arminianist kind of position would be that god foreordained this way of salvation and that all who would believe on christ would be saved this way all right and i'm not going to try and sort that out uh, much better Minds and men than me have, uh, have attempted it. But let us not get distracted with that. That's not the point. Um, and it's, it's interesting how your blinkers, your doctrinal biases, color the scriptures. I try not to do that. Um, <laughs> we, we could just look at it, for example, at uh, John 15. and show you what I mean. And I'm not slag at anyone on it. Um, is that is it John fifteen? I think it is. There we are. Mm-hmm. There it is. John fifteen, chapter six, uh, verse sixteen. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, right? And people think that's Calvinism. It's got nothing to do with that. See? See, they they didn't follow Christ. He chose. It's got nothing to do with election, that passage. Understand what he's saying. You have not chosen me to be the Messiah. I am the Messiah. You haven't made me the king of Israel. I am the king of Israel. I have chosen you to be my apostles. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with um, this um, election or, or predestination kind of passage there. He's just sorting out who's who. Who's dependent on who. Um, And so we've got to be careful that our doctrinal biases don't color the scripture. There are scriptures that speak about uh, individual election and and so on. There are scriptures that speak about the will of man. We're not talking about that. What is in view here in Ephesians 
is that God is working to a plan. That's his point. That he had this plan in mind when he started the creation. That's his point. It's not, oh, this is not a Calvinist trump card. And we don't need to be, you know, Arminianists and try and take away its Calvinism from it. We're missing the point. The point is, God is working to a plan. Right from day one, he knew what he wanted to do. That is what Paul is getting at. Is that clear? That's real. And you, you can sprinkle your salt on it however you like, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist. That's, but I'm not going to get distracted. Well, you argue I brought it up, but anyway. These biases exist. Let's focus on what he's saying. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Listen, it was always in the heart of God that you should be his child. That's what he's getting at. It's always in his heart. <clears throat> and look at what, he's, look at what he's, he's aiming at in verse 4. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Alright? And this is to the praise of, his, of the glory of his grace. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And he tells you why. Alright. The fact that this was God's will. And that he is going to take us wicked sinners. And make us into that. Is praises the glory of his grace. Don't we sing it? The comforter has come. Right. I think in our, in our hymn book we have. That I a child of sin should in his image shine. Is that the, how the verse goes? O matchless grace divine, how shall this tongue of mine, something like that, to wandering mortals tell. Remember? Right? And it gets to that I, a child of hell, should in his image shine. That's how the hymn writer wrote it. You can compare the poetry. See which one matches. The comforter's come. Right? This is something, this is what he's getting at there. I, and Paul, Paul couldn't get away from the wonder. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He couldn't get over it. And the, the, the contrast in man's utter unworthiness and God's unspeakable generosity and benevolence and goodness it extols his goodness and grace. That's the thing. And Paul is writing here that uh, uh, this was done before the foundation of the world. Before God began, he had a plan. He knew where he was going. And so he says there, where he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood. If I understand this properly, the English, in whom... The whom refers to the previous verse, the beloved. That's Christ. Accepted in Christ. Who's referred to as the beloved. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten. He could have also said beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He has made us accepted in Christ. And in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
So Sherry trying to encourage Tom a bit with these things. You know, people can feel ashamed and completely unworthy. And uh, I hope I never lose the awareness of how utterly unworthy I am. It's just a given. It, it, it's so deep and real, I don't even have to apologize for being unworthy. It, it's just like talking about gravity or something, you know. Uh, it's just amazing. Can you imagine? Just, just think. Um, there, there's this middle ground where people actually, it's a weird thing, they feel really they should be worthy, but, you know, in this particular instance... They, they're receiving a benefit that they didn't deserve. Do, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? People, you know, oh, thank you. They, they feel obliged to you. Thank you for doing that. But really, you know, I would do the same for you. They won't say this, but, but uh, imagine somebody completely destitute and criminal, right? So broke and, and um, unthankful and criminal, and they're caught, you know, vandalizing or, or destroying this really wealthy person's stuff that killed off so much of his livestock and I don't know what, maimed family members. And the, the owner and the parent, and you know, he's caught by the police and brought before him, what do you like us to do? And he says, well, really, uh, cancel all his debt and I'm going to adopt him as my son. Can you imagine that young street boy, you know, 16, whatever, gangster, he's done all of this hateful stuff and he's caught and he's on death row and the owner says, actually, I'm going to forgive him and I'm going to make him one of my children and an heir of all that I've got. Can you imagine that guy walking around the estate and all of that, the depth of the knowledge that he doesn't deserve a single blade of grass he walks on, it'd be so clear to him he wouldn't even have to speak it. Do you, you get what I'm saying? It's just so obvious, so clearly perceived. He might think, like, wow, I'm here. Wow, this is amazing. But he would never apologize, oh, I'm just so unworthy. There's a depth of a knowledge of being unworthy that goes past even saying it. Do you know what I'm talking about? The trouble with so many people is they have so much perception of how many good points they have that they don't really realize they don't deserve a single thing from God. Paul didn't have that. Paul knew he deserved nothing, absolutely nothing. The riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. According to the riches of his grace. He was a Pharisee. He was so zealous for God. And yet he was physically harming. Participating in the murder of God's children. And he just like. There was no coming back from that for him. There was no self uh, redemption possible for, for Paul. And, uh, and so to him the redemption. The forgiveness of sins. He just. It was, on the one hand, he was rescued in an impossible way. The impossible was done. And the other hand, it was so sure. It was so certain. There was no ambiguity. I was talking with a man. 
and some of you know. And uh, I said, well, do you know that your sins have been forgiven? And he said, well, the ones I've stopped doing are. Do you know you're going to heaven? Well, if I keep faithful like I am now, I will. And there was so much. And it's not that that's entirely untrue. You turn around and deny Christ and plunge up. But they did not seem to have a confidence in the keeping power of God. That was clear. Paul did. As did Peter. Kept by the power of God. He hath abounded toward, right? So we have the, uh, the forgiveness of sins, riches. He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, right? So again, remember, exaggerated or flowery language. God's been rich toward us. He has spelled it out. Just what he's doing. He's told us. This mystery of his will. And this mystery is not arbitrary. He has a good pleasure. It's his warm feelings and, and kind intent. And it was all his idea. And he, Paul is employing what language is available to man to express what God has done. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when it's all finished, Fullness of time. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. All right? When he's finished, everybody, Enoch, Noah, Moses, Job, then the apostles, all of the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, one's already in heaven, one's upon the earth. Now, when this is all done, God is gathering everybody together into one. Now this is important to understand. <laughs> False religions get this wrong. Anyone had a representative of the Watchtower Tract Society knock on your door? Cost you? Commonly referred to as Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyone ever had that? Anyone ever come up with the idea that they think that the 144,000 specific, they're the ones going to heaven, that number's probably all filled up, so I'm not going to heaven, I'm going to live on the earth. You ever? Did you know that's what they believe? It's not going to be like that. You know, you've got the elite in heaven with the Lord, and we're just happy here now. It's the same life, but without all the problems, and with multiplied blessings, and back to It's not that at all. Gather together in one, Right? Um, in Christ. One. Now this is key. This is where Paul's getting to a point. Is, right, he's given this introduction. One. You'll see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Right? He's going to gather together in one. All things in Christ. There isn't going to be this multi-part thing going on. He's gathering everything and everyone together. Uh, I remember having a bit of a discussion with a brother, a bit of a dispute, and it, uh, it was about the parable in Matthew chapter 22, right? Um, kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, 
and so on. And then um, <clears throat> they found both, you know, verse 11 there, they found, they brought in as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment, right? And I, I was talking to him about uh, uh, salvation and um, and. <laughs> This man had come into the kingdom, but because he was clothed in his own clothes, he was rejected. He was straightforward, right? This particular brother was more of the once saved, always saved kind of theological or doctrinal position. And he, he flipped me on my head, really. Uh, not fairly, but I was so surprised. He said, I'm part of the bride, I'm not a guest. And he makes a distinction in the kingdom of God there. So you got the saved. Some of them will be part of the bride. And others will be guests. And it's not like that brethren. This is a parable. The Lord is just making a point. You don't kind of try and. Dissect the parable to that degree. He's making a point here. About how people are saved. Uh, gather together in one. It's not going to be some of the guests. And some of the bride. And. Some of the servants in the kingdom. Uh, there will be differing levels of glory, but all in one. Is that clear? One. In whom we have obtained an inheritance. Now, this we is uh, the Jews, uh, of whom the apostle is a representative. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things off the counts of his own will. So we or foreordained, the Jews were, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. The Jews were first fruits. In whom ye also trusted, ye Gentiles, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So he's laid this introduction. Keep in mind, gathering together in one all things in Christ. Um, and we and you, Jew and Gentile, have obtained an inheritance. Now Paul does here what he does repeatedly, is he goes not off on a tangent, he goes deeper into his point and then he returns it. Think of it, I mean you could think of it more like how I do things, but I don't think that would be as fair to Paul. Instead of you know, going off on a circuit and coming back, Think of it as a swimmer going underwater and then coming up. He's swimming along and he dives, in, but he's still going straight forward. All right? So he's not deviating. Um, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And this, this is um, central, or sorry, this is, um, is uh, essential. After that you believed, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, this isn't a... Pentecostal doctrine he's teaching. Right? It's important to understand the scriptures clearly. Okay, so you, you believe, and then you get some instruction, then you're baptized, and you get some more instruction, and then you're baptized with the Holy Ghost. I mean, it can happen that way for some people, but that's not what Paul is laying out. He's just saying you believed, and then you received the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest, it's the down payment. Of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Unto the praise of his glory. He's, he's just. He's outlining what happened. 
We trusted in Christ to the praise of his glory. First fruits. You trusted in Christ after you heard the gospel. And then after you believed, God sealed that. And he gave you the Holy Spirit of promise. And he'll come back to that later in the epistle. He says, now don't grieve that spirit. All right? But here he's saying you, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the down payment. Um, it's the, the token of what's coming. It's of the same substance. The gift of the Holy Spirit is of the same substance of what we are going to live in heaven. It's a small token, but it's of the same substance, the same quality, the same nature. And the Lord Jesus says that if you lack, ask. It's that simple. Like food. The divine nature. Tasted the powers of the world to come, Paul writes the Hebrews. And this is what I mean. Again, so many people, they're just stuck on forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins by itself is not regeneration. And the, the Samaritans experienced that. They believed they were forgiven their sins and they were so happy. And then the apostles came and prayed for all of them. And they received the Holy Spirit. And the primary issue there wasn't that they all spoke with tongues and prophesied. The primary issue there was that they received the divine nature and became partakers. They tasted the powers of the world to come. The love of God. That is not gritting your teeth. Oh forgive me this, this uh, trip down memory lane. I can remember. In my youth. Trying to live a Christian life. Oh God knows I tried. I remember working as a service clerk. In the, in the, in the, in the, in the porter. You know bring in the buggies. Mop the floor whatever. And occasionally they'd ask. You, you'd meet customers. The stores open. And they would ask you questions. I remember this uh, uh, not happy feeling, uh, seeming uh, elderly woman moving along in her buggy and I was there working and she wanted to be where I was and she said to me, move. Can't you move? And I was greatly uh, um, offended. I stifled it. I said some inappropriate customer relations thing like, don't talk to people like that. And I should have just, oh, I'm sorry, man. So I should, and many people can, but really, you know, as a Christian, love, and I, I did have no love for this woman. I wish the planet would be rid of her. See? And you know, got to come up with some kind of love and suppress all. That's not the gospel. Listen, when you receive the Holy Ghost, you partake of the power of the love of God. It comes out of you. Not just because you're a nice person, but because the Lord of love himself dwells in you. Partakers of the divine nature, not grunters up of trying to conjure up some life of Christ by your grit. Oh, I had grit before I had the Holy Ghost. You are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, the down payment, the, the taste, the foretaste of future bliss. Hallelujah. So many people, they believe, yeah, I'm forgiven, and now, you know, row, row, row your boat. Struggling up the stream, you know. I can love that, and they feel, you know, they're doing pretty good. They're not really hating anybody. And then there's one big problem in their life Lord, help me to love this person. Listen, that person's given to you to show you how bankrupt you are. You need Jesus.
to dwell in you. <laughs> Sorry about that uh, side trip. Sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The earnest of our inheritance. And if you lack, ask and receive. He's, look at all he's done. He's, he's planned to make us accepted in the beloved. And, and Christ, the redemption through his blood, right? Forgiveness of sins. You have this immensely wealthy being who's made planets and all sorts of things. And he's made in the center this little spot of a planet with his precious people on. And he's uh, given his life to redeem us from all sin. Meets out forgiveness freely. And he'll seal that with the Holy Spirit. Just believe on him with all your heart. And so here he comes. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And with respect to the Ephesian church, the way I would understand it is that Paul, having been away from them, remember he had said goodbye, he has heard. And so it's true of them, but as I would understand it, um, a letter he would have sent to several churches. Um, He's heard about their, or he might change one or two features, but... He's heard about their um, love. And he's praying for them. He's heard they're doing well. Every report he hears is that they're walking in truth. As John writes. And he says, I'm praying for you. And he's telling them what he's praying. uh, So that they would seek it for themselves. He doesn't say, I pray, you know, an hour a day just for you. He's not boasting about his prayers. He is uh, he's giving the substance of his prayers that we might be instructed. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I'm praying for you that God will show you supernaturally. We've said before, right, that um, he's not asking for another spirit to be given unto them. You need the Holy Spirit, they need the spirit of wisdom and revelation and so on. But rather he's taking the form or the, the manner of expression of describing this Holy Spirit that John uses in, in the Revelation. The seven spirits of God. The seven spirits which are before the throne. Those seven spirits... It's, uh, that's a reference to the candelabra, right? The, the lamp with the seven. Which is a representation of God, the light. And uh, Isaiah takes it up. The spirit of the Lord shall be upon him. The spirit of wisdom and might and counsel and so on. The seven spirits of God. It's the one Holy Spirit. But he's praying that this element and aspect and function and dynamic of the spirit of God should be imparted to them. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. That's what he wants. That's what he's praying for those that are blameless. Those that are not carnal. Those that are not bickering about, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul. Those that are not trying to show off with tongues or prophecy. Right? Those that don't have any divisions and schisms. Those that aren't into false doctrine. 
Those that are not at odds with one another. Even the Philippians had this, you know. Phoebe and, um, what's the other? No, not Phoebe. Eudius uh, uh, and, um, oh dear, I forget their names. Those two, Syntyche. Yeah, it was Syntyche, yeah. At odds. They didn't have any of those issues. And he can say, look, <laughs> seek to be seeing what's going on in heaven. The magnificence of Christ. Perceived in the spirit. The eyes of your understanding are already open. You already know he's Lord and Savior. But oh that you might have revelation of him. Look uh, that you might know what is the hope of his calling. And the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That you might get how glorious heaven is. And being in his presence. Paul knew brethren. Paul was beyond the. It's going to be good in heaven. And I want to go there. Paul was like the kid in the, in the uh, candy store. Or the, the, the man at the tool store. As the case might be. You know, And he's there. He's looking in through the glass window. You can see that. You can see that. You know. He's even been allowed in to kind of try a couple of things. A child has got a couple of tasty treats. Just drooling. He knows. Not the boy down the street says, oh yeah, there's some sweets things in that store. And if you're a good boy, you'll get to go there. Oh, I'm looking forward to something good. That's where most Christians are at. Paul was there, face pressed up against the window. <laughs> drooling at it. You couldn't move him away from that to anything else. You couldn't entice him away from that. Hey, you want to buy some rotten reduced rack fruit? You know? The man pressed up against the most... Maybe I shouldn't use candy. It's not good for you. But you get the idea. Most sumptuous feast. Pressed his face up, you know. And he's got a bit of a mesh and the smell's coming through. You could get these taste samples. You're going to take him off to, to what down there? Pig slop. He knew. And this is what he's praying for them. A babe can't have this knowledge because they'll be so conceited and full of pride. They're bad enough, insufferable as it is. Now you give them this extra knowledge, their heads don't fit through a door. You need Vaseline and shoehorns and whatever. They're just so full of themselves. But these who were blameless, he, uh, he writes these things. I want you to know what's coming. Hallelujah. What the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to see in your inward man what heaven's going to be like. I want you to think about it every day. I want it to burn before you. It's going to guide your every movement. It's going to be one glorious congregation of people gathered together in Christ. I want you to see his magnificence. Every aspect and detail of Christ. Oh, John saw a bit and he put it in pictorial form for us in the revelation and I'm praying that you will know him like this you'll be in first love all the time (sighs) and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead Set him at his own right hand. There's power. Power that works in the believer. Think of it, brother, sister. The power of the resurrection. 
What a thing is it. Is there any greater power than to raise the dead? Men can make bombs to kill people by the millions and they can't bring a single soul back from the grave. They can put infinite numbers in the grave. They can't bring one out of it. Power, not only raised from the dead, but exalted into heaven. That's the power that works in you. And oh, if you could see it, you wouldn't pray, oh God, help me to love this irritating person ever again. If you could see the exceeding greatness of his power, which he wrought in Christ, resurrection from the dead. And he'll raise you and me from the dead. And he raises that dead, loveless boy. Could love a friend, let alone an enemy. Can love anybody, no matter what they do to you. Power. Power. Hallelujah. She wrought in Christ. He wants us to see this power. John puts it another way. John wants us to see, or deals with a different aspect. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. He wants, these apostles want us to grow up, brethren, out of this, you know, hope my prayers answered, or the futile strivings and bleatings. He want us to walk as he walked. I thank thee, Father, that thou hast heard me, and I knew thou hearest me always. They want us to come up into this life of God. Don't you want to go there? I do. I'm praying that you will see the greatness of his power to usward, who believe. Want you to know how great God's power is toward the believer. By the Spirit. This is the power that raised Christ from the dead. And set him far above all principality and might. And if a power is in you that's above all principality and might. Well you've got nothing to be afraid of. And every name that is named, he goes off into the glories of Christ. All things under his feet. And he comes back to the thread he's tracing out. Now Paul is working to a plan in his epistle. We've looked at some of these things. We've skated by them. Picked up one or two and looked at them. And you... Hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins? And he goes back to their former life, and we were all like that. You lived according to the spirit of disobedience, and we all were like that. But God, who is rich in mercy, is coming back to this great love wherewith he's loved us, even when we were dead in sins, quickened us together, made us sit together. This is a theme. He said, Gather together in one. Right? Verse 10, chapter 1, gather together in one. Here in chapter 2. Right? Quickened us together, verse 5. Raised us up together. Made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show. Do you see? He's, Paul has got the vision where God is going. The exceeding riches of his grace. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. He, he, again, he takes another side point or... Dips down under the water if you prefer. Remember, you in time past were Gentiles. You were called this, you know, uncircumcision. Somebody told me recently I was kafir. Anyway, you can look that up. So, Muslim, so I refer to 
some some level of non-Muslim as kafir. So that was interesting experience. I've been called a lot of things, but you get a new one every time. So. Uh, <clears throat> called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision. So you're called the uncircumcised. And then you were outside of Christ. You were foreigners from Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope. Not, oh, I don't know what to bring. But you had no expectation beyond the grave. You didn't know God without God in the world. But now you who were once far off, you're made near by the blood of Christ. Again, Paul's bringing us to a point. Because he is our peace who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile, broken down the middle wall of partition between, be, be, uh, between us. Listen, do you understand? That middle wall of partition wasn't like this down the line. It was like this. <laughs> Jew here, Gentile there. Not Jew on one side, Gentile on the other. Jew at the front, Gentile at the back of the wall of partition. He's made both one. He's taken down that wall and he's brought the Gentiles up and made them partake of that promise. <clears throat> right? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What did he get do? He got rid of the... the um, Outwardness of the law. It's no longer an outward form. It's an inward spirit. To make one new man. Again, so one. Together, one. Reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross. And came and preached peace. Alright, so through him, verse 18, we both have access by one spirit. You're no more strangers and foreigners. You're fellow citizens. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. All the building, there's one, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul is addressing this, that God is working towards this one thing, one people. And now he's addressing the fact that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Uh, this is an a, uh, ancient division. And he's addressing that here. And he brings out his credentials in chapter 3. And says, you know, this wasn't known before that the Gentiles could be just part of Israel. That there wasn't this class system and you had to be converted to being a Jew. And, and he said, verse 8, unto me, chapter 3, less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see the fellowship of the mystery, right? That everybody in heaven, principalities and powers in heavenly places might know through the church the wisdom of God. He's back into praying that you be strengthened. And what to be strengthened in? Verse 17, in love. You'd, have, you'd be so strengthened in love, you might know the love of Christ. And he points us in verse 20, knowing this is beyond our human ability to think. 
God's able to do more than we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So he's come back to this. And then in chapter 4, he tells us, one Lord, right? There's one, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that all the gifts and ministries in the church are for that one purpose. To build an habitation of God. Verse 22 of chapter 2. Habitation of God through the Spirit. See if he, and then, in, so in chapter 4 he says, um, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he tells us how to do that in the remaining chapters. And not agree. All right? So, chapters 4 to 6 are how, and at the end of it, he talks about the individual Christian and the armor and always triumphing over Satan's devices and gives some specific spiritual instruction on that. Prior to that, he gives practical, earthly, relational instruction. Notice that if you can't get just the easy relational issues right, never mind the spiritual things, uh, moves from the lesser to the greater. This is the overview of the, the book. But the thing for us, brethren, is to keep in mind here, if we wanted to focus this morning, ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, he's saying he gave some apostles, prophets, you know, different gifts. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Saying that the ministries and gifts God has given are to bring the believers there, to maturity, to ministering, to being priests, to to dispensing the gifts and graces of God in the earth. Builded together an habitation of God through the Spirit. Brethren, application this morning, right? We've looked, uh, however falteringly, at the Ephesian letter there, an overview, taking the, the who, what, when, why, <laughs> chapters 1 to 3, and making a passing reference that chapter 4 is the how. Chapters 4 to 6. Right? How to be loving to your wives at home. How to be obedient to your parents. How to be submissive to your husband. How to be in the workplace. And finally, just in the spiritual realm. What he's saying is that all of the gifts, giftings of God in the church is to be focusing on building a dwelling place for God. For time's sake, I won't take us there. But think of the prophets. You know, have Zachariah, or Haggai, Malachi. You know, strengthen your hands and work. Malachi, is it time for you to dwell in your nice cedar-lined houses? And this house, house lieth waste. For us as Christians, Paul was praying for these Ephesians that they would get it. 
that they would, and I don't just mean like, that puts it so pathetic, so human, that they're quickened in the spirit, they could perceive. This is like Elisha praying for Gehazi. Lord, open his eyes. There be more that be with us than with them. Look at the difference between Elisha and Gehazi. I know uh, applications are made to faith and the keeping power of God. Elisha wasn't worried. Gehazi, alas, my master, what shall we do? Lord, open his eyes. This is a picture. Paul's there praying that our eyes would be perceiving the glories of the heaven to come. The heaven that now is. And that that would be the thing that moves us. Every day. It guides us in the decisions that we make. Where, how we spend our time. Where we go. What we do. Because you and I are about building a dwelling place for God. In the spirit. We want to be in fellowship with believers. To, to um, be built up in our knowledge of Christ. To grow up. We want to be with unbelievers. To share with them the wonder of Christ. That they might turn to him. This is what life is about. Whereas, brethren, in our country, what happens to Christian people is that we are, yeah, we love the Lord. We want to get through our life righteously. But we are so consumed, like everyone else, with just getting through the day and getting through the year and just getting all of the externals properly looked after. This is the, the, the default. This is where the current is. This is where the tide goes. Is that we want to just get through life doing clean stuff. Loving the Lord and having him answer our prayers. And, but Paul is saying this is what it's all about. A dwelling place for God. One glorious eternally purposed dwelling place. God and his people. And I'm praying that you're going to see what it's like. And that you're going to see the magnificence of Christ. And that you're going to know the greatness of his power. That it's like the Lord. You're going to say to this mountain, be thou removed. So when he's praying for us, brethren. That we would be so consumed with the work of God. And so filled with the knowledge of Christ. And so aware of God's power. And in that vein... Serve him in everything. That's what we think about. That's what we see. And I, I would entreat us, brethren, to be exhorted afresh, um, to be taken up with this, to have grace from the Lord Jesus to walk through this world this land of Canada, with all of its ease and prosperity, with our eye fixed on Christ, walk through church life, local church and greater church, with a view to it being really the dwelling place of God, each brother, each sister, a lively stone in the temple of God. And you... You and I get to kind of rub it and polish it, not chisel it. (laughs) That's not for us, but 
rub it, polish it, build it up, elevate it, uh, that God may dwell in the midst. Um, And so Paul writes, we can look at passages of it in more detail afterwards. That's his plan. I want you to see this. He can't help praising the Lord for the, the grace of Christ. And he wants us to see uh, the magnificence of Christ. He wants us to see the greatness of his power. And he wants us to be engaged in building this one dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Are you there? Are you up for it? Does your heart say, Amen, Lord? Are you ready to show up to work to the captain, the Lord Jesus? What will that have me to do? Every day. Everything we do in our work and in our domestic life for him. Oh, Lord, help me with my various impulses that distract me needlessly. Oh, a hymn. My every sacred moment spent in publishing The Sinner's Friend. Let's pray.